Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 273, Aphrodite, for our It's All Greek to Me series. Yeah, that's right. This week we are talking about the idol, the gorgeous goddess of love, sex, and, and not rock and roll, but she sure has a lot of rock and roll moments. Aphrodite! Amanda, initial thoughts and impressions of Aphrodite before we dive in and learn more about her. I mean, goddess of love, right? Mm-hmm. As I was falling asleep last night, I was thinking through my day ahead, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get to, get to record Julia tomorrow. That's always super fun. Love that. And talk about Aphrodite. Ooh, yeah. Don't don't tell her she's not the prettiest. I don't remember exactly if that's one of the stories. I think it is where someone is, like doesn't choose Aphrodite for being the prettiest. And I, as I'm falling asleep, I'm like, that's the one thing I know about Aphrodite. Don't tell her she's not the prettiest. <laughs> that's true. You have to tell her she's the prettiest. Though, yeah, as we'll talk about later, even calling her the prettiest is not a guarantee that bad things won't happen happen yeah yeah so aphrodite beautiful love and sex goddess from greek mythology and actually amanda before we get into this one i've pulled quite a few either poems or quotes from various stories regarding aphrodite do you think that maybe we could do some poetry corner in this episode (gasps) yes please my favorite For non-Patreon people, Poetry Corner is a bonus episode kind of style that we did occasionally on the Patreon, and we probably will do in the future. But it is Amanda reading me poetry, and then I am like, oh, let me tell you what I think about that. But instead, Amanda, (laughs) I'm going to read you the poetry, and you as an English major are going to tell me what you think of it. Oh, incredible. Have to dust off that degree, baby. That's what I want for you. I want you to be able to use it all the time. Thank you. To get us started, we're going to start with a little primer from our girl Edith Hamilton to kind of get a picture of what we're dealing with here. Edith Hamilton describes Aphrodite as, quote, the goddess of love and beauty who beguiled all, gods and men alike, the laughter-loving goddess who laughed sweetly or mockingly at those her wiles had conquered, the irresistible goddess who stole away even the wits of the wise. Oh, that's very good. And also really sets up Aphrodite as like a girl boss in the way we define it in 2022, which is like Mm -hmm. probably problematic, right? And like is probably... I don't know, is like the spiritual successor of the girls who made fun of your outfit in the cafeteria. And I think when you say that somebody like loves laughter, it's like, okay, at or with, you know, if I'm on the side of it, it feels great. And if it's directed not at me, I'm probably like, phew, it's not at me. So I am very curious how the poetry is going to um, characterize her. Ooh, perfect. So let's actually dive right into our first poem, right? So this is one of the Homeric hymns, which calls her, quote, a beautiful golden goddess. And then we'll get into the full quote, which is about basically her birth, which is a story we'll tell afterwards. The breath of the west wind bore her over the sounding sea, up from the delicate foam to the wave-ringed cypress, her isle. And the hours golden-wreathed welcomed her joyously. They clad her in raiment immortal and brought her to the gods. Wonder seized them as they saw violet-crowned Cytheria. Wow. I mean, let's start with a sort of look at the motifs here. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to start analyzing literature, if that's not something you've done before, is to look at colors because colors are laden with meaning. And we've talked on the show before about how purple is often a color associated with royalty mm-hmm. and different cultures will have different contexts. But at least in the literature I analyzed, that's one of the ones that I learned. And gold, you know, it's beautiful. It's about the morning. It's about being touched by a god. It's about royalty as well. And so those are the two things that really uh, jump out at me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we will learn a little bit more about her colors later, but gold is absolutely one of her colors. Like almost always she is the beautiful golden goddess. She is golden wreathed or golden footed or something to that effect. And two, I mean, she is really being characterized as like a gift that all of nature has come together to deliver, right? Like we're talking about breath, about waves, about, you know, wind and the sea, like the foam, everything is kind of like coming together to like lift her and bring her up and and place her where she needs to be. So it, it really feels like the, um yeah, like the, this is a, a God-given gift. This is like a nature-produced gift. This is not somebody sort of trying to make a place for themselves. This is like, yes, you are being treated as you deserve. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. And what I really love about this description and kind of the idea that I think the Greeks are coming across is this idea that like Aphrodite is so beautiful and that beauty is her power. Mm. Like with Edith Hamilton, she was saying like her beauty is so irresistible that it can steal away the wits of the wise. I think that's Mm. an incredibly like powerful imagery when it comes to Aphrodite. And in writings or stories about her, it's said that the winds would flee before her and the storm clouds would disperse when she arrived. Wow. I just, it's beautiful. Like where she walked, sweet flowers would flourish. Radiant light spreads from her and the waves of the sea laugh as she stands on the shore. Like so beautiful that even the beauty of nature falls before her. Yeah. And it just like stuff going your way, like being aligned with the world. That's how I feel occasionally when like I make two subway transfers in a row or when like I get to the bus stop just as the bus is coming up and I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks, society. Or like, you know, three green lights just as I as I pull up to them where it, it feels like the world is on easy mode or like, you know, the the sort of, you know, metaphorical like ramp has been lowered to to let you down. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that is the kind of world that Aphrodite lives in where everything Mm -hmm. bows before her and she's just very much used to it. The poets would even say that without her, there is no joy or loveliness in the world. Wow. I mean... Big, uh, big shoulders, I guess. Yeah. To stand on. Big ups to Aphrodite. And I mean, I don't blame them for speaking so highly of her because yes, all of this joy and loveliness that she brings is, is wonderful. But at the same time, as we've learned from all of these episodes of talking about the Greek gods, this is not the only side of her, obviously. Yeah. Like what happens when this goes wrong, right? Like if, if you're the kind of person who's used to like you extend your hand when you get to the office and someone puts a perfect iced coffee into it, what happens when it's not there? I'm really having a sort of growth. Vaz uh, metaphor, maybe because I finished uh, inventing Anna Delva yesterday. It's all it's all here. This is the the soup that I'm bringing to this episode. I I love it. Bring that soup, Amanda. And by soup, I mean context. Yes, it's the bean soup. It's Apollo's here. Oh, no, <laughs> it's the broth that suspends the stuff of life. I don't know. I was like, is that a quote from something or you just no, made that no, up? No, it's not. Incredible. I love that for you. Thank you. Yes. So she could be treacherous. She could be malicious. She could be even deadly and destructive against those who wronged her. It was also said that the myrtle tree was sacred to her and the dove was the animal that was most closely associated with her. Okay. I mean, the most beautiful of birds in theory? Yeah. I mean, very, very beautiful. Certainly. Especially like the pure white dove is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love a morning dove too, personally. Like they're so beautiful, but also sad. Yes. I kind of told you the story of Aphrodite being born in the poem that we read earlier. And I think we can kind of start this episode now that we have a little primer with where did she come from? Yes, we can tell the story of her birth, which we will. But first, let's examine her pre-Greek roots because the Greeks weren't the first ones to have a love goddess. And it's more than likely they were borrowing from some earlier traditions. 
It's pretty safe to assume from scholarly research that she was inspired by the worship of Astarte in Phoenicia, and then reaching even further back, the Mesopotamian Ishtar and Sumerian Inanna, who we've talked about on the show before. Mm -hmm. All three of these goddesses were associated with sexuality, fertility, and procreation. However, all of these goddesses kind of fell into this role of queen of heaven, and Aphrodite decidedly does not have that title in Greek mythology. So while she was an Olympian, she never really enjoyed the status that these other three goddesses had among their worshippers in their own hierarchies. Probably because like that's the typical Greek thing where it's like we're going to take our gods and then the ones that we're transporting in from other places are going to be slightly lesser. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great look to say, oh, hey, great, great god you have here. Where'd you buy it? We're going to make that one important now. No, you want to come in and say, you know, to justify the conquering that yours is the best. Yeah. Including those three goddesses, there are some comparative mythology scholars who also think that Aphrodite might have had early ties to the goddess Eos, who was the Greek dawn goddess. Both were known, especially in early Indo-European worship, to be both, quote, erotically beautiful and aggressively sexual, which is what I want (laughs) in my life. I know, that would be great. That's quite a title, which I appreciate. They were also known for having relationships with mortal lovers who ended up dying tragically, which we'll get to later. Okay, yeah. I mean, you can't be like powerfully, terrifyingly erotic or whatever it was (laughs) without sacrificing a mortal lover here or there. Exactly. And even their associated colors were similar. Like we were talking about gold and purple being colors associated with Aphrodite. As well, she had the colors red and white were associated with both her and Eos. So it is quite likely that the two of them might have at some point been the same goddess and then separated later, or at least were entwined in some way. That makes sense. Now that we kind of know where Aphrodite came from in an anthropological sense, let's talk about her origins in the actual myths themselves. I guess like you're listening to Greek mythology episodes. I don't really need to like provide It's not like spoilers, I guess, but like context. (laughs) Castration's coming up real soon. All right. So as the story of Aphrodite's birth goes, according to Hesiod in the Theogony, when Cronus killed his father Uranus, he also castrated him. Mm -hmm. And when Cronus severed his genitals, he threw them into the sea. Ah, the foam from which Aphrodite was born. I know this painting, but that one's called The Birth of Venus. Yeah, well, Venus is just the Mm -hmm. Roman version of Aphrodite. So there you go. There you go. So as you implied, Amanda, from that foam made of Uranus's genitals, when they hit the water, Aphrodite was born. Mm -hmm. Hesiod says that this was kind of where Aphrodite's name comes from because it can be translated as foam arisen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not... Lovely imagery, (laughs) especially when you think about what the foam probably is. It's not great. I feel like this knowledge has been haunting me for like six years and people ask, what do you do? The first thing I want to blurt out is, do you know Aphrodite was born from the the Chisholm foam? (laughs) From jizz hit from the ocean? Yeah. The ocean jizz? That's where she's from. (laughs) Yeah. It does make sense why my mom told me not to play in the ocean foam when I was a kid. (laughs) Because we all like have imprinted the story in our minds and we're like, ooh, no, that's probably gross. Even though it's just, it's just water. I mean, it's probably also pollution and there's like wrappers and stuff and maybe like crabs. Like I, I get why you tell a kid not to go play at the shore, but she was just like, ew, the foam. And, I, and now looking back, I'm like, oh, 
Oh, Tammy, you were right. Tammy knew what was up. Tammy was a beach girl, so she knows what's good. Yeah. Actually, I really like this direct quote from Hesiod in the Theogony, which said that the genitals were, quote, carried over the sea a long time and white foam arose from the immortal flesh. And with it, a girl grew. You're pouting at me. Don't pout at me. I'm pouting into the camera. I know this is not compelling audio, but meh. Uh, If it helps, there is another version of Aphrodite's birth where there's there's no castration and there's no foam at all, and she's just the daughter of Zeus and the ocean nymph Dione. But the sea foam birth is perhaps the most well-known and well-received for whatever reason. It's certainly the most memorable, Julia. You, you really, you got to give it that. Yeah, it's impactful. I'll give it that. It is impactful. And like, yeah. you know, beautiful in a way, I guess. <sighs> Can we move on? Yeah. In other tales, Aphrodite actually took the name DNA as another one of her epithets, which we will get to in just a bit, meaning divine one. Okay. Very pretty. Very nice. Has nothing to do with foam and we don't have to talk about it anymore. Excellent. We might talk about it a little bit more, but we'll see. (laughs) No, it's okay. It's okay. Listen, I know it's an integral part. It's just like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Speaking of epithets, Aphrodite, unsurprisingly, was a favorite of the poets and therefore had a lot of really beautiful ones. Her most common one was Orania, meaning heavenly, which again, I think also comes from the idea that she was inspired by these quote unquote queens of heaven in Ishtar and Inanna. So makes sense. Totally. And linguistically, you know, the tie with Uranus. I get that. Yeah. She was also known as the full title of Aphrodite Pandemos, meaning for all of the folk, which I think is a really interesting one. Hmm. Listen, aromantic people exist, but I do at the same time find the idea that the Greeks found love. And again, the Greeks had plenty of non-romantic types of love, but the idea that they found love to be a universal experience and therefore Aphrodite was the goddess of everyone, I think is a really, really cool image. Yeah, I actually find those kind of Greek disambiguations of kinds of love to be really inclusive because no matter what kind of love you feel most rich in or you feel appeals to you the most or that you value the most highly, whether that's among, you know, friends, you know, of yourself and your purpose, sexual or romantic love, they kind of recognize that all of it exists. Yeah, check out the erotes i think wrote in in one of our advice from folklore episodes Mm -hmm. and we talked a lot about the different types of love and the different erotes which are the children of aphrodite so highly recommend checking that out so in other naming conventions she was also known as philomades or smile loving which a couple of the other translations they choose to instead of smile loving they translate it as other things which are not smiles but rather um genitalia which i you know we don't have to we don't have to acknowledge that we can just move on she loves to smile good for her also you can love you can love sex we're not here to slut shame her yeah no i know it's just like when it's the greeks the greek poets mostly guys saying that i'm just like "Mm, (laughs) must you homer Really? <laughs> so she was also called Cyprian and Cytheria because of her association with those places. Those were the mountain and the island that she was said to have like been born upon the shores of after the yeah. seafoam incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So important. She was also called Aphrodite and Kopios or Aphrodite of the Gardens in Athens and oh. also was called 
Eleman or the Merciful in Cyprus. Again, Cyprus, her hometown. So they're very nice to her there. The Spartans called her Potnia or Mistress, Morpho meaning shapely, and my personal favorite, which is Embolagera or She Who Postpones Old Age. Oh, I mean, that's a very fun way to put that. That is a nice one. I like it quite a bit. And, you know, because she is this goddess of like sex and beauty, it makes sense. Not that older people or signs of aging are not beautiful. A lot of signs of aging I do think are beautiful. I was talking to Jake about this the other night where I was like, yeah, you know, like some people I look at them like when they were at their quote unquote, like peak or whatever. I'm just like, right. No, they're hotter 20 years later now. Yeah, I think so too. And actually bought for both my grandmother and my mom a book by Grace Bonney interviewing a bunch of women over 50 about like their lives and careers. And the portraiture is just stunning. If I'm lucky enough to live to a ripe old age, I can't wait to rock gray hair and not pay a bunch of money for collagen treatments. It's it's tough. Like as I get older, I, I realize how fucked up sort of beauty standards are. And I'm excited that people are starting to deconstruct that right on time for us. Yeah. I love my gray hair. I'll say it right now. I love my grays. I want them to all come in at the same time. The patches I don't like, but the gray hair I love. (laughs) You'll have a real storm situation. You're going to look great. Oh, man. Yes. 100%. Finally, my other personal favorite for Aphrodite is the name Androphonos, or the killer of men for her more vengeful (laughs) nature. You know I love it, Julia. I had to leave it for last because it is one of the best ones. Oh, hell yeah. So in terms of romances, it's not super surprising that Aphrodite has quite a few, but there are two that probably feature most heavily in her stories. The first that we'll talk about is Hephaestus, who is the god of fire, blacksmiths, and metalworking. We've talked about him a little bit before, and we'll talk about him more when he gets his own episode, but he was the son of Zeus and Hera, or sometimes just Hera herself as like an act of revenge against Zeus giving birth to Athena on his own. Because Hera's like, no, you're only allowed to have children with me. Mm -hmm. Zeus has never listened to in his entire life. No, Zeus has never listened to a woman and Hera has no shortage of complaints. I think it's so fun that that's the one that really got her. Yeah, yeah. That's the one where she's like, you know what? I can do this by myself as well. This is my one thing. This is the one thing you let me do. I can have it all. Hephaestus is kind of notable among the Olympians because he is the only one who is disabled and the rest of the Olympians are quote unquote perfect, which disability does not make you not perfect. That's silly and we're not going to pretend that's true. Anyway, one story tells about how Zeus was starting to grow concerned because of Aphrodite's beauty that all the gods were going to start fighting over who she would get to marry, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just like, I can see this starting to happen. Aphrodite is so hot. We can't, something needs to happen here before this all like boils over. So he gives Aphrodite's hand in marriage to Hephaestus in order to make it look as though he wasn't choosing favorites. Mm -hmm. Simple, basic, uh, probably a great decision by Zeus for once, shockingly. In another version of the story, however, Hephaestus had fallen quite hard for Aphrodite, like all of the men on Olympus, but knowing that he would never win her favor compared to the other gods, Hephaestus used his wiles instead. Mm. So what he did was he built his mother Hera, who's the goddess of marriage herself, a golden throne, right? And Hera being a little bit vain and like, you know, the queen of the Olympians, she loves the gift. But when she sits upon it, the trap is sprung and she is trapped in the chair. And Hephaestus is like, I'm going to leave you here until you agree to marry me to Aphrodite. 
incredible. And she's like, you know what? Fine. <laughs> I respect the hustle. Fine. I respect the hustle, son. It's fine. So Hephaestus is quite happy with the marriage at first. He gives many beautiful wedding gifts to Aphrodite, many pieces of beautiful jewelry that he crafted himself because, again, he's a blacksmith and an artisan and he's very talented in that way. I'm going to say right now, Julia, sexiest figure in Greek mythology. Yeah. Sexy. I love a good craftsman, a man who can work with his hands, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 So many beautiful pieces of jewelry, but most importantly to Aphrodite, the strophion, which was basically a girdle or a very early version of a bra that accentuated her breasts. And it was said to make her even more irresistible to men. I don't know if this is the intention of the myth, but I really love it when a partner is like, yeah, Look how fucking sexy that person is. That's my person. And I, I think it's so wonderful when we grow up hearing so many slut shamey, body shamey tales of, you know, enforcing modesty for fucked up cultural reasons and not empowering reasons that you choose. I love the idea that that he's like, yeah, of course you're beautiful and I want you to feel as beautiful as you wish and and look as beautiful as you can because like, fuck yeah, dude. The relationship between Hephaestus and Aphrodite, which uh, unfortunately like did not age well. Yeah. A real early wife guy. Yeah. He's a real wife guy. And I appreciate that for him. You know, we love it. However, and I feel bad going into this now after we're like, yeah, Hephaestus, you deserve this wonderful marriage. Julia, I, I only get to have unproblematic faves in Greek mythology midway through an anecdote. And you know what? I just, I appreciate those moments. I live in them. And then I go, oh, well, that makes sense. And you know what? That's just the journey. That's okay. You know what? He still might be your unproblematic fave at the end of this, depending on how you react to this next story. Okay, let's hear it. Aphrodite, despite being a married woman, well known for her extramarital affairs, most notably with the god Ares, the war god. In the Odyssey, there is a story that is told about Ares and Aphrodite's affair that is happening during the Trojan War. So the story goes that one day the sun god Helios came to Hephaestus and told him that he had seen Ares and Aphrodite having sex in Hephaestus's own bed mm. and then told the blacksmith god that they were more than likely to do it again. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Helios also can see all this because he is the sun and therefore sees everything that happens during the daytime, <laughs> which classic. So... Hephaestus concocts a plan, fashions a golden net, and so the next time Ares and Aphrodite are getting busy in his bedroom, he springs the trap and they are trapped in this golden net. Oh. So as revenge, Hephaestus then invites the rest of the Olympians to come and laugh at the two captured lovers, which, you know... Not great. Not great, but also like hopefully that stops them from ever doing it again. Yeah, not great. I get it. Not great. I get it. <laughs> but also it's Greek mythology and like there are worse things he could have done. Yeah, there sure are. So eventually Poseidon and the like rest of the Greek gods, specifically the gods. So it's like Poseidon, Hermes and Apollo, they all start to kind of feel bad for Ares. And so they pay Hephaestus to release them. I mean, from Hephaestus's point of view, you know, you kind of made your point and get some money so not that bad yeah it was said that aphrodite became so embarrassed that she left olympus for a time and went to her island of cyprus where she was catered to by the charites or the graces who were the daughters of zeus and urinome and were the embodiments of charm beauty and goodwill so you know not not a bad deal for her. Like, yes, embarrassing, but then you get to take like a nice vacation with your gal pals. Yeah, get to lick your wounds, hang with your gal pals, go to the spa. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Ares and Aphrodite had several children together, including Eros, who we've spoken about on the show before, and the other Orotes, who we've also spoken about. They also together had Phobos, who is the embodiment of fear, Deimos, who is the embodiment of dread, and Harmonia, who is the goddess of harmony and concord. I guess fuck the two bad kids then. That is, I must say, that is how it feels sometimes to be like, why Why am I the one that got these mental illnesses? Why couldn't we just sprinkle them around or just skip it all together? Maybe that's how those kids felt. Yeah, probably. I mean, Phobos and Demos are the, and we'll talk about them a little bit more when we get to Ares, but they ride in his chariot with him when he goes into battle. So like, obviously, fear and dread are things that you experience on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. The outlier there is Harmonia, who's just like, hey, everything's nice and beautiful. Can you guys stop? (laughs) Everything's pretty fine for me. I feel like Harmonia is probably the youngest child. Again, I'm an only child, so I don't know. But yeah, she has youngest child energy. Or oldest child peacekeeper. That sometimes happens. That's also true. uh, Yeah, every family's different. Yeah, exactly. So of course, those weren't her only lovers as the goddess of love herself. But we'll talk a bit more about one in particular when we get back from our refill. Let's do it. Julia, it's the refill. How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing all right. Amanda, I had some coffee from the espresso machine that I put newly in my apartment. Do you want some? That would be wonderful. Thank you. Ooh, okay. I have fancy little espresso glasses. Absolutely wonderful. Do you think there is enough to share with our new patrons, Lauren, Bethany, and Connell? Oh my god, absolutely. Here, everyone, little glasses all around. I feel like sometimes you meet people and then they also prove themselves to be accomplished baristas. And I feel like that would totally happen with our supporting producer level patrons. Alicia, Anne, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, J. Bay Bay, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Nieselkins, Little Vomit Spiders Running Around, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah Scott, and Zazie. Yeah, I feel like they would be really good at latte art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So cute. And I would make like a custom chosen animal on the latte foam of our legend level patrons were I ever to get the chance to like serve them a coffee. Audra, Bex, Clara, Drew, Iron Havoc, Lexus, Morgan, Mother of Vikings, Sarah, Taylor, and BME of Scotty. I feel like maybe we could do like little Medusa heads maybe. Would that be cute? Mm, I love that. That's a lot of like intricate little snake heads, but I'm into it. It would take a lot of effort, but you know what? They're worth it. Or maybe we can get a template and like dust cinnamon on top or nutmeg or something. Yes. Easier, certainly. Definitely. And if you're interested in our drink preferences and the custom recipe cards Julia has made for all 273 episodes of this podcast, hey, you should become a patron. Patreon.com slash spirits podcast where you can get drink cards and all kinds of other amazing bonus stuff. In addition to just knowing that you're supporting the podcast and helping make this our jobs. Yeah, it's great. And we appreciate every single one of you that signs up every day, week, month, year. You're the best. And patrons got a bonus uh, Your Urban Legends episode uh, on Monday. So, you know, it's a good one. Yeah, I love doing those bonus episodes. But Amanda, you know, I was wondering, what else are you loving lately? Reading, listening to, watching? What are you loving? I recently tore through two, like, post-war era gay detective sort of slow burn romances by Kat Sebastian. The first one is called Hither Page, and the series is called Page and Summers with an O. I really love like a classic kind of golden age detective mystery. Like think about, you know, Agatha Christie and writers like that. And this is contemporary, you know, written today, novel in the style of those kinds of books. And the mysteries are really good. It does that thing where like there's the false lead, but it doesn't like let you kind of slow 
slow burn on that for the whole book. They're like, oh, we thought it was this, but it's not this. And I love that because it really lets you kind of end on the process of solving what's happening. And the central kind of romance between a shell-shocked country doctor and a jaded spy, as Kat puts it, is just incredibly sweet. And the village is so like tenderly rendered and there is like intergenerational friendship and it's just a fantastic fantastic series. So that's Page and Summers by Kat Sebastian. And adding it to my wish list for my library app Mm -hmm. and good to go. Yep. Hither Page is book number one. Incredible. Now, Amanda, what if our listeners were craving something a little bit more further out there than post-war romances and wanted to learn about like, you know, other planets and stuff? What would you recommend? Not just other times, but other worlds? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's one podcast for that, and it's Exolore. You gotta listen to Dr. Moya McTeer, who's an astrophysicist and folklorist, talking about fictional worlds, how you build them with expert guests, talking to professional world builders, and of course, course, reviewing the merits of worlds that have already been built. Moya is so thoughtful and smart and lovely, as you know from our Advice from Folklore episodes, and she is a wonderful interviewer. I just did an interview that's going to be airing perhaps in the future on the show, and being interviewed by Moya is a lovely experience. I get now from the other side of the microphone, or the headphones rather, why the show is so great. So subscribe today by searching for ExoLore in your podcast app or going to exolorepod.com. Link is also in the description, as always. Now, Amanda, we just talked about in the episode about the girdle that Hephaestus made for Aphrodite that just enhanced her boobs so much that they became even more magical. And now I don't have Hephaestus to make my bras, but I do have Third Love, where their bras and their panties and their pajamas make me look sexy, but also comfortable. And that is truly a gift of the gods, if you think about it. Yeah, I feel kind of like a goddess rising from the sea when I get up in my extremely incredible silky like camisole set that they sent us recently. Their sleepwear is to die for. I feel like a goddess. Like there's no other way to put it. It's so comfortable. It's so cute. I love it. Yeah. And Third Love does comfort so that you can do you. Their underwear, their active wear, and all of their feel good in it all day wear is designed to hug better, to hold stronger, and support for longer. And you can just take a real quick quiz from them. It makes it super easy to find the bra that actually fits you. And you are going to love your fit guaranteed. Amanda talked about a set that they sent us And oh my God, mine arrived on Valentine's Day and it was the greatest Valentine's Day gift that I received slash could give to yourself and your boobs and my boobs. Exactly. So feeling is believing and you can give your boobs the 24-7 comfort and support that they deserve. Upgrade your bra today and get 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com spirits. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com spirits. Julia, I love nothing more when I come home from a long day at work or when I am just feeling like I need a little help. And I I want to kind of give myself the gift of not having to cook dinner. The thing that I love the most is opening the DoorDash app and ordering a lovely meal from one of my family-owned local restaurants. If you have back-to-back meetings or errands or chores, and you just need a hand clearing something from your to-do list or taking back a little time or just doing a little bit less, which is something I'm trying to work on, DoorDash can be a really great tool. You can get what you want to eat right now and right to your door with DoorDash. Honestly, last night, Amanda, we 
really wanted Thai food from this specific Thai place and they were closed. And I was like, I have no idea what other Thai places are in the area. I just opened up my DoorDash app and I found a great rated Thai place that I hadn't tried before. And their Masaman curry was probably some of the best I've ever had. Mm. So thank you, DoorDash. Love it. And for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code SPIRITS. That's 25% off up to $10 in value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code SPIRITS. Don't forget that's code SPIRITS for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change. Terms apply. Terms apply. Amanda, we're also sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure that you show up for yourself. Amanda, what's a way that you've been showing up for yourself lately? I have been trying to hold myself to less strict standards at home. And listen, would I like to clean my kitchen sink before I go to sleep every night? I sure would. But making myself do something when all I really want to do is rest is not serving me. And I am trying really hard to prioritize rest like I would for anybody else. And I know that you have been talking to your counselor at BetterHelp about that, which I know is probably making things a lot easier. Absolutely. Her name's also Amanda, and uh, we talk every week. And that's how I get my therapy. I don't have to go to a waiting room. I don't have to, you know, talk to somebody face to face if I don't want to. We sometimes just do a voice chat, or if I'm particularly busy or traveling, we can correspond via their secure app instead. It's really, really convenient. Yes. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Spirits listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. So for Aphrodite, I definitely pictured a cocktail that was kind of similar to a Cosmo, something that is like strong, but also sweet and tart at the same time. But I was doing some Googling and I found a cocktail called Aphrodite's Ambrosia, and it seemed perfect. The original recipe calls for Prosecco. I feel like champagne would be a better option. That seems more up Aphrodite's alley. Mm -hmm. It also includes whiskey. They suggest Maker's Mark, which I think is pretty on brand. A little bit of apricot liqueur, and then quite a few dashes of bitters, which I think is, again, perfect for Aphrodite. It's balancing like the sweet, but also the bitter. And I really love this cocktail. I made it for Jake and I the other day. And I think if you added like a little bit of like muddled strawberry or raspberry, it would be perfect. I just, Julia, really want to give you a lot of credit for resisting the temptation to do a foamy drink and an egg white shaken drink because I would have revolted. <laughs> you could have. You could additionally. See, the problem is, though, you have a sparkling thing in there already. Yeah, I feel like if champagne's not your jam, you could always do like a whiskey sour type situation mm -hmm. and just get that egg white all up in there if that's what you feel like. If you want foam. If you want foam. You know what, Amanda? I wanted to save you from that, but I'm glad that's where your mind went. I'm glad I, dr I drilled this into you so much <laughs> that now that's all you could think of. If you had done it, I would yell and then be like, fair enough. But, you know, you did it. And I feel like you really, you deserve, you deserve some praise for that. No, the champagne is the foam. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Woo! Okay, so with these cocktails in hand, let me tell you about the tragedy of Adonis. No! 
One of her other lovers, as told in the Metamorphosis, was Adonis, who actually had a connection to Aphrodite even before he was born, because he was the son of Mira, who was a woman who Aphrodite had cursed with insatiable lust for her own father. Not great. Oh, piss. That's not a great curse. It was because Mira's mother had bragged that Mira was more beautiful than Aphrodite. Again, don't do that. (sighs) I don't care if it's not yourself. Don't ever say anyone is more beautiful or more talented than any goddess. It's just not smart. It's just not smart. So Mira was transformed eventually into a myrrh tree. That's where we get the name from. Mm -hmm. And gave birth to Adonis in that form, you know, as a tree. Okay. I don't know how that worked, but it's an interesting image when you try to figure it out. It is. Seems painful, but I'll I'll leave that to the gods. Yeah. So Aphrodite came to claim the baby after that in the woods where he was born from a tree and mm-hmm. gave him to Persephone to be fostered in the underworld until he came of age. Okay. Why she didn't do it herself, I'm not sure, because she has like had other children, so it's not like she is unfamiliar with you know, raising a child, but gives the child to Persephone to raise. When Aphrodite returned to take him back from Persephone years later, she found that Adonis was just an incredibly handsome young man. Extremely hot. That awkward feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hot, Persephone refused to release him into Aphrodite's custody. Also because she, like, raised him. Yeah. But also he was extremely hot. So it's, like, a little weird. Totally. You, you got some investment. And I don't know, sometimes your ward grows up hot. That's a thing that we have seen in Sweeney Todd and others. That's true. That's true. So the two of them start fighting over this. And eventually they call on Zeus, who is forced to step in and decreed that Adonis would spend a third of the year with Aphrodite, a third of the year with Persephone, and then a third of the year with whomever he preferred. Interesting. Actually, kind of similar to Persephone's whole deal, which I think is an interesting parallel. But Adonis chose to spend his given time with Aphrodite, which is a little bit of a slight on his, you know, adoptive mother or whatever. But sure, it is what it is. However, this is a mortal man, Amanda. This is a mortal man. (laughs) He can't be a lover of Aphrodite and not suffer. Yeah, exactly. So one day he was out hunting as you do when you're a young, handsome Greek man. Uh And he was wounded by a wild boar. Not again with the wild boars. Fuck. Well, interestingly, in some tellings, the boar was sent by Ares, who was jealous of Adonis for spending all of his time with Aphrodite. I mean, sure. And the boar is the, like, animal of Ares. So it makes sense. Brutal. Brutal. And of course, Adonis bleeds to death in Aphrodite's arms. Terrible. Terrible. But also, Amanda, it's it's time for Poetry Quarter. (gasps) What a poetic image. Because we're going to tell the poem of what Aphrodite says to the corpse of Adonis. You ready? Oh, baby, let's do it. So she says to him, you die, O thrice desired, and my desire has flown like a dream. Gone with you is the girdle of my beauty, but I myself must live who am a goddess and may not follow you. Kiss me yet once again, the last long kiss, until I draw your soul within my lips and drink down all your love. 
And then the poem continues. The mountains all were calling and the oak trees answering. Oh, woe, woe for Adonis, he is dead. And Echo cried in answer. Oh, woe, woe for Adonis. And all the loves wept for him and all the muses too. Wow. My personal favorite section of this is the kiss me yet once again, the last long kiss until I draw your soul within my lips and drink down all your love. It's very physical like holding them in your arms i know i know death was always more embodied and closer to home for like all of human society than it is for us now where that you know generally doesn't doesn't happen within our homes mm-hmm. and we have to use our traditions to figure out how to you know have physical reminders of death mourning moving on things like that but this is i mean it's it's very moving and you know we also kind of see as echoed in the previous poem nature comes together to kind of add its weight to your feeling like the world is sharing in your grief in your feeling and that's really moving yeah i'm glad that you pointed out the physicality of the poem and kind of what is being described in the scene because i didn't put two and two together and aphrodite is an extremely physical goddess like a lot of her power comes from her beauty and her looks and like you know the physicality of sexuality Mm -hmm. and so the fact that she is like you know pressing her lips against the dead lips of adonis and is holding him there and is like talking about drawing his soul into her lips and drinking down his love like that is a very physical and Honestly, like, it's a pretty erotic, like, oh, man, you've died poem. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. My first thought was about Pyramus and Thisbe, the satirical play within a play in Midsummer Night's Dream, where two lovers, Romeo and Juliet style, are dramatically, longly dying. And the fact that it was so parodied when Shakespeare was writing, which seems to us to be like the height of classicism, you know, in in the 2000s, just makes me laugh because like, this is obviously a thing that has existed for long enough that he parodied it then and we're still parodying it now. But a thing that you parody gets parodied because something about it works and something about it sticks and it becomes prolific and it becomes a really integral part of some part of like art or society. And so I I get it. Like this is, you know, that's why the phrase Adonis is a phrase that we use and these associations, you know, I didn't know about, but it makes sense that that's sort of the pinnacle of like a beautiful form. And of course you miss that when it's gone. Absolutely. And I also just like the idea of we talked about this in the Hermes episode, but the separation between like the immortality of the gods and mortals in the underworld. There's like a very clear line that the gods cannot cross when it comes to entering the underworld. And Aphrodite knows this. Yeah. Oh, Aphrodite. Now I'm sad about Aphrodite, which I wasn't expecting to talk about (laughs) this episode. Oh, But yeah, Aphrodite being the goddess of love has in times gotten her in trouble in the past. So for instance, there was a time told by Homer where Zeus became irritated that Aphrodite was encouraging these romances between the gods and the mortals. It's like, that's what I do. That's my thing. So in revenge, he made her fall in love with this handsome mortal shepherd. The guy was a shepherd, but also a prince. There's a lot of like princely shepherds that happen in Greek mythology. Like I get it, but I don't get it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this particular mortal shepherd prince was named Inchisus. And so Aphrodite, upon seeing him and falling in love, went to the shepherd in his home, appearing as this tall, beautiful, but mortal woman. Mm-hmm. Inchisus, upon seeing her in her bright clothing and gleaming jewelry and her, quote, breasts shining with divine radiance. Wow. Yeah. He like looks at her and he's like, 
ma'am, you gotta be Aphrodite. I'm honored you're even here. I'm gonna build you an <laughs> altar on top of Mount Ida so that you can come and bless my family. That's it, handsome moral shepherd. Okay. And Aphrodite's like, no, no, I'm not Aphrodite. I'm just a princess and I'm a virgin. And if you would please take me to your parents so that we could be married, that would be great. You know? Okay. Unfortunately, because it's Aphrodite, Anchises is overcome with his desire to have sex with her and leads her to his bed rather than being like, oh, yes, let's go get married right now. He's like, nah, ma'am, you are too hot. We got to do it right now. I mean, he tried to build her an altar. What more do you want? Yeah. And she straight up lies to him. She's like, no, I'm not Aphrodite. It's so flattering that you would say that. But no. (laughs) So the two of them have consensual sex. This is not like a non-consensual thing. And after they are done, that is when Aphrodite reveals her true divine form. She's like, all right, I got what I want, which is having sex with you awesome. And in Kaisis, upon seeing her full divine form... Does he just perish? I mean, he doesn't fully perish, but he is terrified. (laughs) Oh, no. He is, like, more scared than he ever has been in his entire life. But Aphrodite tells him, do not worry. I am going to bear you a son, and he is going to be a hero and a nobleman just like his father. And that does, in fact, come to pass, and she gives birth to the demigod Anasis. Wow. One, I love that story where Zeus is like, aha, well, you've made me fallen in love with so many mortal women, and now I'm going to do the same to you. And she's like, nah, it's all good, actually. Like, no one cares. I'm going to have some sexy role play. We're going to have a son that both of us treasure. Uh, Moving on. It truly was just sexy role play for her. Oh, my God. That's fine. Yeah. Keep it fresh. Enjoy it. It's like, oh, no, my car broke down and (laughs) you must take me to your parents so that we may wed. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, stranger in a bar. Like, great. Oh, no. That image is going to be stuck in my head forever. Thank you for that. Yeah. Have a sexy shepherd role play. Enjoy yourself. Just do it. Live your one mortal life. So much like the other gods in Greek mythology. Aphrodite was a goddess that was great to have on your side, but not the type to be trifled with. Mm -hmm. She loved love, as you can imagine. And she (laughs) loved when people appealed to her vanity in order to win her favor. Sure. For example, she aided the nobleman Hippomenes when he was trying to win the hand of the warrior woman Atalanta, who we talked about a little bit before. Atalanta basically said that she would refuse to marry any man who couldn't outrun her in a foot race. And those who lost, she would then behead. That's girl bossing, baby. Truly, truly. So Hippomenes desperately wanted to marry her. And so he went to Aphrodite. And Aphrodite gifted him these golden apples and instructed him to toss them in front of Atalanta as she ran. So he did what he was told. And Atalanta, seeing the beautiful fruit, stopped to stoop down and pick up each one, which allowed for Hippomenes to outrun her. I love the idea of just like a strong, strong lady being like, ooh, a nice fruit, and then stopping. Like, that's so relatable to me. Highly. As someone who I know loves apples, Amanda, I can see it. Oh, yeah. Nothing like it. However... Of course, there's always a however. Hippomenes forgot to thank Aphrodite and repay her for her kindness. No! But you can't do, you can't do that. Gotta kiss the ring. As a result, Aphrodite filled the couple with lust while they were visiting the temple of Sybil. And Sybil, for those who don't know, primal nature goddess. She saw this defilement of her temple happening and then turned the couple into lions as punishment, which also satisfied Aphrodite. Mm. 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 Yeah. I mean, my head's just in this space now, but like that's some like do or die romance trope right there. Yeah. That's a thing. 
Obviously, this is not her only instance of revenge. For example, when the women of the island of Lemnos refused to make sacrifices to her, she made all of them stink so badly that their husbands refused to have sex with them. Damn, Aphrodite. Really stoop and low. Yeah. And then in their rage, these women killed all of the men on the island and were supposedly so sex-starved when Jason and the Argonauts arrived there that Aphrodite was like, fine, you guys can have sex again. And so Jason and his crew were allowed to help repopulate the island, and the women of Lemnos became devoted to Aphrodite. If only it was the island of Lesbos, Julia. If only, if only. We will talk a little bit about that later, though. Another silly man who didn't honor Aphrodite was the famous chariot racer Glaucus, who managed to piss off Aphrodite when he refused to let his horses mate because he believed that it would hinder their speed. Oh, fascinating. And so Aphrodite was like, no, you got to let these horses fuck. And he's like, no, I must win all my races. Oh, my God. And then during a race, Aphrodite drove his horses mad and they tossed him to the ground and tore him apart. Oh, my God. Amazing. Again, like I, I appreciate, Julia, that you brought aromanticism and asexuality into this discussion early because it is simply not true and outdated and harmful to assume that this is something that every human being innately needs, wants, should do. And I also appreciate that Aphrodite is kind of like, yeah, if, if you like to have sex, you should. Like, if you like to have sex, yes, you know, it's it's fucked up not to let you do that. Yeah. And, you know, overcorrects in lots of bad directions. But it is something that I appreciate. One of the reasons I think that, that Greek mythology remains is because it goes so against kind of puritanical culture under which we grew up. There's something like very sort of modern about it, which is not totally right and doesn't get the whole picture, but is a useful ingredient to kind of add back into the soup. Amanda, we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't talk about Paris and the decision that led to the Trojan War. Let's do it. So this all started with the marriage of Peleus and Thetis, who would eventually give birth to the hero Achilles. This was an event that like all of the gods and goddesses were invited to, except for the goddess of discord, Eris. This, of course, pissed off Eris. And she came to the party anyway, showing up with a golden apple that had the phrase for the fairest inscribed into it. It's a trap. It's a trap. The apple's a trap. Well, listen, being the goddess of discord, of course it is. And so she just chucked it into a crowd of the goddesses like a grenade and then settled back to watch the chaos ensue. This is fully what I'm going to picture next time I see a bouquet throwing happen at a wedding. Do you want me to just like get a nice golden apple for you and to carve for the fairest into it? That would be great. And then I'll eat it. Yes. And then I'll share it with Eric and then we'll have a great day. Yes. Of course, almost immediately, the apple is claimed by Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. Each believed that the inscription meant that it was theirs. That's girl bossing, baby. Exactly. And of course, when they could not settle it between them, they turned to Zeus, who was already like, it already looked like Zeus was starting to sweat because he did not want to get in the (laughs) middle of these three. And so he tasked the Trojan prince Paris with making the decision. And I want to note something here that doesn't typically get discussed in this part of the story. Paris isn't at the wedding. Really? He is over on Mount Ida in Troy, taking a bath in a hot spring, when all of a sudden, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite appear to him. Incredible. Like, imagine you're just taking a nice fucking bath, and the three hottest women you've ever seen just appear and ask you, hey, which of us is the hottest? Incredible. You're like, well, I'm probably about to die, but what a final act. Of course, for Paris's mortal eyes, they are all equally beautiful. And Paris is like, ma'am, please, I can't decide. Please don't make me decide. And so the goddesses have to kind of resort to bribes at this point. Mm -hmm. Hera offers up power over all of Asia and Europe 
pretty great. Pretty great. Athena offers up wisdom, fame, and glory in battle, which he probably should have taken given what happens next. And then Aphrodite promises him that she would let him marry the most beautiful woman on earth. Oh, Paris. (laughs) If only you'd chosen better. Yes. So Paris declares Aphrodite is the winner. The problem, Amanda, in case you don't know the Trojan War, is that the most beautiful woman in the world is is already married to King Menelaus of Sparta, and her name Uh is Helen. Uh Uh-huh. And there's just a whole, just a lot of dominoes happen after that. Yeah. So Aphrodite leads Paris to Menelaus's home to help him steal away Helen. The two other goddesses, Hera and Athena, sided with the Greeks as Menelaus led them into battle to take his wife back, while Aphrodite mm-hmm. remained on the side of the Trojans. Mm-hmm. And the Trojan War happened. There we go. All right. To wrap us up, Amanda, Aphrodite, we got to talk about her festival. Okay. She had one main festival. It was known as Aphrodisia. It was celebrated mostly in Athens and Corinth. The festival was to celebrate Aphrodite's role in the unification of the city of Attic on the island of Cyprus, which, as I mentioned, was Aphrodite's, like, home spot. And this festival would happen what is, like, modernly around late July to late August. The festival would begin with the purification of Aphrodite's temple through the sacrifice of a dove, her sacred bird, Mm -hmm. and then an offering of salt due to Aphrodite's connection to the sea, sea foam, 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 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also bread, which was typically shaped in a phallic-shaped loaf. Incredible. Also, male goats were given as offerings to the temple, though not sacrificed, because this was basically designed to not be a very bloody festival to appeal to Aphrodite's sensibilities. Additionally, acts of service for the temple were very popular, especially in Attica. So worshippers would wash the statues, they would coat the temple roof in pitch, they would dye purple cloth for ritualistic clothing, that kind of thing. Damn, really just showing your love uh, by helping clean up the spot. I love that. Exactly. And then most notable about the festival is the fact that many of the worshippers were actually sex workers as Aphrodite was their patron goddess. Right on. Right on, right? couple of like last things about Aphrodite. Her worship was intrinsically tied with her iconography. So I mentioned the dove, which I think is worth pointing out was also a symbol of both Inanna and Ishtar. Hmm. Like literally the Greek word for dove seems to have arrived from the Semitic phrase for bird of Ishtar. Wow. Basically, I think it's extremely cool from a etymology point of view. Totally. And so also in order to honor Aphrodite at her temple in Daphne, worshippers would leave these offerings of these small white carved marble doves, which I think is also extremely beautiful. Adorable. And she was also associated with a couple of other birds as well. Sparrows, for instance, which are mentioned as pulling her chariot in a poem by Sappho. You asked about Lesbos earlier. There's our girl Sappho. My girl. Called The Ode to Aphrodite. And let me read this as our last poetry corner. Yay! Rich throned immortal Aphrodite, scheming daughter of Zeus, I pray you, with pain and sickness, queen, crush not my heart, but come if ever in the past you heard my voice from afar and hearkened, and let your father's halls and came with gold chariot yoked, and pretty sparrows brought you swiftly across the dark earth, fluttering wings from heaven through the air. Gay I should have ever heard. I love it. It's extremely gay shit. Yes, excellent. (laughs) With pain and sickness, queen, crush on my heart. Ma'am, you've heard me 
pining in the past. This time I'm pining for real. Come help. With pain and sickness, queen crushed on my heart. Let my love love me back for once, ma'am, please. Please. Make her notice me. Make her notice me, please. Oh, I love it. Oh, I just really like the idea of sparrows fluttering in the darkness. Like, that's a really, like, beautiful but also scary imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very becoming of Aphrodite. Yeah. And it it really, I think, captures what it is to ask a deity for help. Like, it's not a light thing, right? And it's it's sort of acknowledging, like, I know I've asked in the past. If ever you're going to help me, like, now is the one. And you have to cross that distance. You have to go from your father's halls. You have to come in a gold chariot. You have to be carried by birds across the earth through the dark expanse from heaven. And, like, that, I think, really makes serious the ask. It really shows the kind of, like, the depth of suffering, the size of the favor. And you're right, Julia, like, saying, like, I, I know in the past I've said it, but this time I really mean it. It really just gives it weight and gravity. Yeah. It does. And I like this because it really does show someone, I know it's Sappho, but like someone who is worshiping, who is honoring, who is calling out for Aphrodite. And it's a really good example of like what I feel like her worship looks like. Totally. A few last iconography things and then we'll wrap it up. But swans, geese, and ducks, all sacred to Aphrodite, again, because she was connected to the sea, as well as conch shells and roses. Her fruit was the apple, unsurprising after the story with Paris. But she was also, like Persephone, associated with pomegranates, which some scholars assume might be because the red seeds suggest sexuality. Like, have you ever broken up a pomegranate? That's a hot fruit. It's a sexy fruit, Julia. It's a sexy fruit. Yeah. It's a hot fruit. We're not talking enough about it. A pomegranate's a hot fruit. Maybe the hottest. But also, Amanda, did you know that some Greek women used pomegranates as birth control? So here's how that worked, by the way, because I have exclusive details on that. Oh, great. Thank you. Women should grind the inside of a fresh pomegranate peel, add water, and then apply it to their vagina. I mean, was there like acidity, like a sperm acidic, you know, there's probably a reason people did that, right? So this comes from a guy named Seranus of Ephesus, who was a Greek physician who notably wrote a four volume treatise on gynecology. So really just one of those like write some stuff down and hope one of it works situations. I mean, he also suggested stuff like liquid lead as... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My personal favorite suggestion from him is a great form of birth control is sneezing. Okay. Well, I mean, all right, never mind. I mean, I guess. I'll continue to reclaim the pomegranate as a, as a feminist fruit. You know what? I did see something, and I, I think it was an outdated medical study, but someone did say that like, oh, well, animals that they like applied pomegranates to or something to that effect did see a decrease in fertility or something like that. Fascinating. I don't know how true or accurate or, you know, up to date that is, but I did see something that said that. So Amanda, that's it for Aphrodite. I didn't feature some of her more well-known stories because either they're ones that we've covered already, like her role in the story of Eros and Psyche, but I think the ones that we did talk about painted a pretty distinct picture of Greek mythology's love goddess. And I'm so glad that you were able to provide even more insight to the poetry that I chose. Amazing. Thank you for delivering unto me this poetry corner. Now I am looking up different roles of pomegranates in uh, feminist ceremonies. There's excellent pomegranate satyr plates. Oh man, there's just, a, there's a lot to love here. I'm very excited. Shout out Aphrodite and Persephone, both our pomegranate girls. Pomegranate girls, nothing like it. Nothing like it. And remember, next time you crack open a pomegranate, stay creepy. Stay cool. Stay sexy. Stay sexy. Aphrodite wants you to be sexy. 
Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye.